Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. It's August 16th. Inflation is off its peak, stocks are off their lows, and primary debt issuance is back in vogue. I'm Rob Schiffman, and welcome to this month's Bloomberg Intelligence Credit Chat Podcast. With us to provide the answers to some of BI's most asked questions are a slew of our global all-star analysts, including our European consumer staples guru, Louise Parker, all the way from Hong Kong, Cecilia Chan, who covers Asia gaming and tech issuers, and our king of healthcare, Mike Holland. We're going to touch on a, uh, a whole bunch of names and subsectors today with a primary bias towards how inflation and recessionary risks are impacting credit quality and valuation. So thanks all of you for joining. Uh, welcome, Louise. Uh, how's everything across the pond this morning? Hey, Rob. I'm very good, thank you. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So I think, listen, your world is one of the, the most interesting, uh, I think, to all of us because... You know, it's not just like costs are rising and people are worried about inflation, but there's a war going on. Um, and from what I, I understand, it's not just like um, oh, uh, gas prices are skyrocketing. People are having a tough time paying their bills. But when you walk into a supermarket, you know, the cost of everything is, is through the roof. Maybe we could just start off just with a drop of background of like what's happening um, from the consumer perspective with inflation um, you know, and how that's impacting uh, earnings for some of the companies you follow. Yeah, sure, Rob. Um, we saw this as a key theme, even in the third and fourth quarter last year, heading into 2022. We already saw gas prices and oil prices rising. Um, that has a direct impact on to packaging costs for consumer products companies. And now with war in Europe, which we didn't really think we'd see in our lifetime, um, Russia is basically weaponizing gas and gas supplies across Europe. So that doesn't just hit producers, manufacturers, but it, as you said, it hits people in the hip pocket. And everyone has, it has a knock-on effect to consumer sentiment. Psychology is so important for not just going to the supermarket, but, you know, going to any store. And we've just had some figures out today from Cantal, which is, um, uh, where we look for what's happening on the grocery um, inflation front and also market share. Now, for the, for the four weeks ended early August, the first week of August, they said that um, inflation in grocery products, so this is at the supermarket, rose 11.6% in the UK. Now, Tesco's number one in the market. Um, they're not losing market share. But what we're seeing is the rise of the discounters. So Aldi and Little are, are grabbing share from the likes of Morrison's and Waitrose. As people trade down to the discounters away from, it used to be the big four, but really we're looking at a big six. Gotcha. Now, what about like when we start getting into some specifics? So like this weekend, I had family over. And to show how, how much I was concerned about my family finances, I served a delicious bottle of... Kirkland Chardonnay. Um, and I think that we're seeing a real rise in private label style sales in the US. You could basically buy the same product for a lower cost than the brand name. If you're looking at names like, like Carefor, you know, what are they saying about 
private label sales. And are you seeing a huge uptick in, in that area as you're seeing the cost of everything else go up? That's a really good question. Um, Carrefour did talk about it in their um, second quarter, their first half earnings um, conference call. They said that, that they expected it more in the second quarter than they're seeing, but they're actually expecting a real rise of private label going into the third and fourth quarters. Now, that might be great for the um, food retailers because it enhances their margin from the private label sales, but it's not so great for the consumer products companies. Um, if you look at the, the food guides, the drinks guides are actually a little bit insulated and they have more premium products, but what you might see even for the likes of um, Diageo, they, they've actually got higher margins than their competitors and they may very well see people trade down from their premium products to, to you know, lower margin products, but they haven't seen it yet. So on one side, great for the retailers that the private label is increasing, for the branded consumer companies, not so great if they're losing out on the premium products. Yeah, interesting. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned Diageo because my actually my family actually did not want to drink the the Kirkland wine. I found it delicious, <laughs> and uh, you know, the the perfect the perfect price point. Was it in the beginning of COVID? Um, you know, uh, beverage companies were crushing it because people weren't going out and they were buying tons of alcohol. Like, what's happening with a name like Diageo? Um, are they doing meaningfully worse now, meaningfully better? It's really not changing. Um, it, there's a real disparity between what happens in Europe, um, drinking in bars versus the US. In in Europe, it's it's it used to be 80-20, you know, in terms of their volume and where they got their high margin, where they got the, the throughput. It would be the, the bars, so that out of home versus at home. In America, it's more like 50-50. So people in America, you can have an outdoor barbecue in the summer months, you're going to entertain more. But with COVID, Europe was absolutely crushed. Not only did people not travel, so there was no duty-free sales. People often pick up a bottle of something for a gift at the other end when they're staying with family and friends. People could not go out. They were restricted from going out. So, you know, we've seen this massive post-pandemic demand for um, drinking, eating out, and that's really helped the beverage guys. They had a really poor 2020 into 2021, and now they've had a massive recovery. And the real question is, for the likes of Diageo, which has premium margins, better margins than its um, direct peers, um, for instance, Pernod Ricard, can they maintain those margins? And what they really need to see is consumer sentiment remain strong. And with, as, we, as you said at the beginning of the conversation, inflation is really beating up customers and consumers. Um, people think if they're trading down at the supermarket, think about that discretionary item. You're just not going to go and buy a new bed, a new sofa. Um, it's just going to be outside your, your thinking right now because you're really trying to trim your costs and your, and your household budget. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I think here what we're hearing from the likes of like a Mike Campalone on a Walmart is that, you know, they're not selling TVs and they're selling a, a, a lot more groceries, but it's much lower margin. Um, so revenues are still higher, um, but profits are meaningfully lower. What What's happening in general in terms of credit quality with all this? Like who stands out as having either... Um, credit that's more stable than others or better positioned? You know, how, how should investors position themselves when these inflationary impacts are having such a wide variety of, of changes um, 
at both the consumer level and the company level. Yeah, in terms of the food retailers, they're really in a good position because they were strong through the pandemic. They had that, you know, no one could eat out, so so everyone had to buy their food in the supermarket. And if you couldn't, um, the hypermarkets, uh, the large big boxes, you would call them in America, they didn't they didn't perform very well. But anyone that was doing food delivery or people were uh, shopping closer to home, so a, a short car ride away, a short drive from your home, people, um, those those retailers, those food, food retailers were doing really well. But in terms of food retail, we're really looking at sort of steady as she goes. Um, in terms of earnings outlook, it's really flat. We haven't seen anyone trim their guidance and we haven't seen consensus um, fall on uh, on dire estimates. Yet when I'm looking, that's on food retail, when I'm looking across to my beverage credit profiles, they're really stable. Um, we're seeing some sort of drop in in margin outlook now that we haven't seen it yet in the actual numbers. We, this very much is a second quarter sort of where we, where we see the trend going. And that's because it's not just energy costs, gas and oil costs increasing, packaging costs increasing, but also grain. If you think about any any liquor, it's coming from grain, um, and Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. So that's having um, an, a, a direct impact on the cost of, of companies. And just gotcha. flipping across to another of my names, I know, I know you wanted me to talk outside of just drinks, um, but I have a coffee company called JDEP. Now, they um, it was basically a leverage transaction they funded a year ago. They've got um, sterling euros and dollar bonds and they they offer it's a stable triple b minus credit they offer a nice pickup versus the the um alcoholic beverage peers so if you're looking at something in the beverage space um but frankly across the board yields are still relatively high even though we've had a rally since mid-june when when you know bonds were crushed after the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, but if you listen to our credit strategist over here, Mahesh Bingalingam, he says there's still a lot of carry. You know, you're looking at 2% for single A names in the consumer space, up to 4% for um, triple B consumer names. So if you're just looking for yield, there's certainly pockets um, of yields out there. And on the flip side, if there was a name you wanted people to avoid, what would it be? Uh, it's probably... It's probably not the reasons you're thinking. It's probably not because a company is deteriorating in credit quality. It's probably something like Ahold. Ahold Delhaiers, they have um, European and US uh, supermarket operations. They're still relatively tight to the peers. So, you know, only 1% or less in yield. So I wouldn't, they've, they've also got growth outlook in their estimates at 4% this year. So on the flip gotcha. side, they're doing really well because the US is, is outperforming Europe but on a relative value basis, it's not my favorite. Excellent, awesome. I Listen, there's so much stuff going on in your world. Um, let's have you back sooner rather than later. Thank you so much. Hey, Cecilia, so moving across the world, I, I think there's an interesting dynamic what's going on in terms of Macau gaming and uh, the US. Um, you know, we talk about inflation here. Um, you know, restaurants are packed. Um, Gaming facilities, Las Vegas, is absolutely jammed packed. I mean, the, the cost of, of getting a room in a hotel in Vegas, you know, is probably the, the highest ever. Um, but we're not seeing that sort of recovery in Macau casinos. Like, why exactly is that? 
Yeah, unfortunately, in Macau, it's totally opposite. Um, the reason is because we think um, the slow recovery is because um, as long as China continues to implement the zero COVID policy in the country, it just makes people don't want to visit, especially the Chinese um, visitors, because like the travel sentiment is likely to remain weak because we have seen like cities could suddenly lock down if the government sees a resurgence of COVID cases there. And then, um, and also the government will also implement very strict um, uh, uh, COVID policy. And so that is definitely going to affect the recovery of Macau's gaming uh, revenue. And of course, inflation is another cause because as you know, like gambling and travel, they tend to be among the first expense to be cut amongst um, the discretionary spending. And so, um, yeah, we think like this year, the Macau gaming recovery may only recover to like 20% of the pre-pandemic pre level. And then for next year, it will be only returned to 31%, which means most of the, the, the issuers will only be breaking even. I know there's a whole bunch of new gaming laws. I, I don't want you to go into tons of detail because it, it it can get people bogged down, you know, but, but how is that affecting the sector overall with license renewals? And, and as part of that, are, are you seeing a shift if you're not seeing, um, you know, is that whole travel issue or you're not seeing people from Asia going into Macau? Is it the same thing or are they, are they not headed to the U.S. as well or is it, is it Macau specific? Well, I think this will be Macau, more Macau specific. And of course, like for the Chinese tourists, because they, they it's so much closer for them to travel to Macau. And so Macau, uh, like to Macau, um, the Chinese tourists is really the main, main revenue source. And so in terms of like the gaming law, because they have um, just implemented, well, they have just announced the new gaming law. And so... Um, yeah, that will actually release um, the regulatory risk in the sector. But at the same time, we think, um, yeah, really it's the recovery that we need for, for the overall gaming sector, for the overall Macau gaming bonds to come back. Gotcha. Well, you mentioned, you know, now that you're moving to, to talking about bonds, that's what we do. So in, inflation seems to, and, and sort of this weak Macau recovery, um, it, it certainly could have an impact on refinancing. You know, we saw a slowdown in the U.S. of new issuance, a real dramatic slowdown um, in the first half, particularly for high yield. I mean, high yield uh, new issuance was down um, some 75 odd percent. Is, is liquidity going to be an issue for, for some of these names? I mean, are, are the stories really in jeopardy or is there access to capital for, for these casinos? Well, luckily, liquidity of most of the uh, Macau gaming issuers are mostly solid. So we, we have an estimation that um, the operations of the casino may exceed over 20 month, 21 months under a zero gaming uh, revenue scenario. And so, um, yeah, but uh, at the same time, uh, we think most of the casino, they face very little refinancing risk in the near term because the most significant uh, debt maturity will only come in 2024. And we see that uh, the parents are actually are able to provide loans to um, the, the Macau gaming issuers. Like uh, we have seen Win Macau and Sense China obtaining the parent loan recently. recently. And also uh, we have uh, a Macau-based casino operator called SJM. And they recently announced a 2 billion, parent, um, 2 billion Hong Kong dollar parent loan as well. And they plan to do another right issuance, which may uh, bring 3 billion uh, Hong Kong dollar and so I think um, liquidity shouldn't be a big problem for the Macau gaming issuers in the near term. 
So how, how are you telling investors to play this? Are you suggesting uh, to move to the front end of the curve? Uh, are there certain names in particular that, that you like or, or dislike? Well, um, since because of the easing um, of the right regulatory risk, um, we think that the Macau gaming bonds will be more sensitive to the macro rather than the industry fundamental. And so um, I think since China and uh, Melco, which is another uh, Macau-based issuer, these two may uh, outperform under the new gaming law. Because for example, for Sans China, even though it got downgraded by the rating agencies to double uh, B plus, but we think the company um, will be the first to outperform its Macau gaming peers um, because of its larger exposure to the non-gaming facilities, which actually aligns with the Macau government's aim to expand into the non-gaming business. And also its um, overseas ventures and experience may help catering gamblers in Asia. And that is also um, aligning with um, the Macau government's uh, strategy of bringing overseas uh, gamblers to the city. And so it helps a company to stand out from the rest um, during the license renewal process. Um, and also for Melco, um, I think uh, it may outperform the peers because of its premium mass uh, market strategy. So premium mass market will be is expected to be the first one to rebound um, when the recovery comes back uh, because of um, the recovery of VIP will be dragged by the ongoing junket crackdown. And so, um, yeah, for these two names, I think they will outperform the other peers. If gotcha. the and, you know, and before I let you go, you know, you, you, you do a phenomenal job covering a real wide swath of, of, of broad names, particularly in the tech and internet space. Um, I'd love just if in like 30 seconds, if you can give us your view, you know, with so many of these Chinese names getting annihilated, you know, yet another story this morning on Metuan um, selling off on a, a possible 10 cent sale, you know, is, are, are you favorable on that space and are there names that people should be adding to or avoiding? Well, I think for the China internet sector, um, there are just too many regulatory risks right now, because as you have uh, already heard that uh, Tencent is is saying that they may uh, sell the ninety uh, the nineteen percent stake in um, in uh, Meituan uh, uh, equity, and so I think. Um, like this is not a surprise to the market, I think, because since the beginning of the year, the company has already been saying that uh, they will sell off um, those uh, uh, non, non-core assets uh, investments. And so this is all under uh, China's um, anti-monopoly rule. And so I think the regulatory crackdown may continue, even though like the market is saying that or maybe the China China government will, will start uh, concentrating in like uh, reshaping the economy. But at the same time, we do see um, news coming out from, from, from the market saying that, oh, the government actually will, will try to continuously um, penalizing the companies about uh, these uh, rules and uh, anti-monopoly rules, et cetera. And so for the market, I think um, it's going still going to be uh, very volatile. Gotcha, awesome, thanks. Um, and why don't we finish it up with uh, with Mike Holland, who is uh, not only our uh, Division One All Star, but he is our Hall of Fame High Year Healthcare Analyst. Uh, hello, Mike. How is everything? Hi, Rob. You're too kind. Great to be uh, here. Yeah, you are. You deserve it. Well, listen. <laughs> um, I don't sort of understand something like healthcare. That's, that's supposed to be a safe haven, right? When things are going bad. Everyone needs healthcare. They should always be doing fine. 
Um, yet it seems like in your world, there's a, a surprising number of distress stories. What is going on and why is this space not more defensive than I would have thought? Yeah, thanks, Rob. It's also it's great to be on today. Hey, so, you know, it's a, it's a theme we've been talking about for some time now. And if you go back, you know, a decade or so, when people were paying for healthcare in the U.S., the premium covered most of the cost of care. Um, the rise of high deductibles over the past 10 years or so has put the brunt of the cost, healthcare costs on the consumer. You know, it, it seems it seems broadly speaking that the historically the, the defensive nature of healthcare is is definitely less durable, um, and, and we've seen that across all subsectors, be it pharma names like Bausch Health with hospital names that are very service oriented and have high labor costs like community health, and um, and also more one-off names that we've you know been been writing about recently like Weight Watchers, which is now known as uh, WW International. Um, it, it seems like these current events really dispel that notion that healthcare is more resilient in recessionary or, or pre-recessionary environments, whatever we're in today. And, and you know, a large part of this, like I said, you know, stems from the prevalence of high deductible health plans, which cash-strapped consumers don't have the extra thousand dollars for that surprise surgery. Um, you know, and, and historically, healthcare costs have risen higher than CPI, right? You know, uh, at an aggressive, you know, mid to high single digits. A clip while inflation was in the low single digits. So in, in today's environment, it's particularly challenging. Uh, on a more fundamental level, in, in today's in, in high inflation environment, if you look at <clears throat> labor and cost pressures for the companies and providers we cover, they've definitely risen faster than headline inflation, not to mention revenue and top-line growth. And, and that's been a recipe for distress. Um, in, the middle, in the middle of COVID, or like when we started, I remember you talking about how so many of the companies you covered were doing poorly because there was no longer outpatient uh, surgeries. Um, so they basically just lost a whole stream of revenues. Is it all of that back? I mean, I get it that inflation is going up, but if you're saying people are actually foregoing using medical services um, and that's having an impact on credit? So, so to clarify, so not outpatient, so inpatient. So historically, when you had a surgery, you went to the hospital, right? You know, 15 years ago, if you needed a, a valve replacement, so some hard cardio procedure, you did that in the hospital. But over the last, so the, the CMS, government body that regulates um, a lot of healthcare stuff, they basically said that you can get certain these more complicated surgeries on an outpatient basis in the doctor's office, right? And that's been a huge pressure uh, point for hospitals that didn't build out uh, outpatient service offerings. And depending on the hospital system, it, you know, where they're located with hospitals, it's really like all, all hospitals are local. It's kind of like politics, right? All, all, all hospitals depend on the geographies they're in. And if you're in a rural area, you don't have a need for an outpatient sector, uh, outpatient um, facility, you know, you know, and uh, certain hospitals, not the top top performers like HCA or even a, a tenant, but hospitals like Community Health, which we've been covering lately, have have pointed to outpatient uh, trends as impacting uh, revenue admission. So basically, if you got a hospital procedure for a hip replacement, it was say fifty thousand dollars in the inpatient. It's twenty thousand dollars in the outpatient. You know, it's much cheaper uh, gotcha. for a number of reasons. And so what's really interesting is 
community health last earnings report, they just, you know, revenue earnings were down 44% year over year. EBITDA came in at 245 million versus you know, about 450. And it was just caught investors way off guard um, as this company had been, you know, really trumpeting that they were going for a turnaround. Um, you know, 10 year story here with community health is they, they, they made a big acquisition 10 years ago. They've sold off a hundred of those facilities over time. They use the cash flow proceeds to pay down some debt. Four years ago, they went through a pretty complicated distressed debt exchange, and and folks thought that they were kind of out of the woods. Um, and media and, and analysts were saying, you know, this maybe maybe the trends are improving here. Uh, that all came to a head uh, last earnings report, and you know they had lower than forecast volumes. Same store admissions were down over, over three, nearly four percent. Revenue per adjusted admission was was down. Um, you know, also payer mix. You know, more people are uh, as the recessionary environment rises, more people are on Medicaid or switching from commercial or from commercial uh, insurance to, to Medicare. That's the trend that's been going on for a couple decades, right? And so hospitals are particularly under pressure if they're not if they haven't been very proactive in, in skating to where the puck's going. And community health, community health really was was buckled under that pressure this last quarter. So if you if you could sum it up for me and and say wh where can investors run and hide get some safety not have to worry about spreads blowing out um where would they go and then on the flip side you know what are the the one or two names you're most most concerned about yeah so so, so the funny thing that the, the what makes community health interesting is they don't have any near-term maturities so if you're willing to stomach the risk here um you, you can buy into second lien bonds in, in the 50s or 60s, uh, 50 cents in the dollar range for, you know, high teens, uh, high teens yields. And what comforts us is the, the last distressed debt exchange was really anchored by a big anchor investor that uh, does not want to, uh, to lose money in bond land. So they're going to do what they can to extend this out as well. So you can, you can get involved in the community health capital strategy. You know, I would say for the second lien, the unsecureds are pretty risky in my view, but the second liens are pretty interesting here today. Um, you know, uh, away from that, you know, there's another name out there that I think is interesting um, that we've been looking at, which is Weight Watchers. I mentioned earlier. Um, what's interesting with Weight Watchers is people have so many subscription-based plans today, right? You pay for Hulu, you pay for um, you, you you pay for uh, Amazon, you know, monthly. Do people want to pay $30 a month for Weight Watchers when, when the cost of everything else is going up? And clearly, they, they're not. Um, the number of members at Weight Watchers continuing to decline as the company really, you know, was looking to uh, restructure and sort of turn around as COVID really pressured their in-studio business, right? They were trying to go to a digital native kind of business, still omni-channel, but, but, you know, basically structure their business so that it was higher margin and digital. Um, that's proven to be pretty uh, challenging for them so far. And after their last earnings call, uh, you know, we were, we were a little negative going in. Um, the bonds have, have traded down about 25 points. They were trading around par at the beginning of the year. And they've got 4.5% uh, bonds due 2029. They're trading in the high 60s now after selling off about five points post our note pre-earnings. Um, and that's an interesting one. The, the, the concern I have with, with Weight Watchers, though, is that uh, the competitive moat is, is really, there really is no competitive moat, right? There, there are a ton of digital offerings for weight and uh, wellness, and um, I'm not sure Weight Watchers has differentiated themselves. 
well enough yet. So uh, I would be wary even in the 60s on that uh, on that point. Well, it sounds like uh, Weight Watchers and me are the same in the same boat. They still have a, a another 25 points to go. I, I'll tell you, I could do much better switching my subscription from Netflix to Weight Watchers. I think that would benefit me. Uh, but thank you. Listen, that space also. There's just so much stuff going on. I think like you know the listeners here can get a, a just a phenomenal sense of what's going on at BI. We have analysts in the right spots everywhere around the globe talking about the most interesting credits um, with quality valuation ideas. Um, thank you guys so much for joining. I, I want to thank what I consider are the best in class analysts for joining us. I also want to thank what I think is the best in class audience for listening to our credit chat podcast. You know, as always, if you need anything from our team, feel free to reach out directly to me, any of our analysts, or simply access the credit research dashboard at BI Cred. So for now, and until next month, stay happy and healthy. May your longs be tighter and your shorts wider. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>